course, that might be a very personal, subjective question. What causes you to not expect good things from God? What's, what is it? Failure causes you to not expect good things from God because occasionally Justin has failed. Not you, but Justin all the time, all the time. Uh, and, uh, and that means that it might happen again. And let's face it, there's nothing worse than failure. Am I right? Well, we act that way, don't we? All right, what else? Guilt. Guilt causes you to not expect good things from God. Unpack that a little bit. Why does guilt? You've done something wrong. You feel bad about it. We deserve bad things to happen. Or we certainly don't deserve good things to happen. And let's face it, God only gives us good things if we deserve it. Right, absolutely. Good theology. But that's where we live, right? That's where we live. Totally. Yeah, what else? Not, not being... Not being kind, somebody's mean, yeah, you, you pray to be kind, somebody's mean to you, that gets very complicated relationally, doesn't it? Yeah, sometimes the way we treat people or people treat us influences the way we treat God and we expect God to treat us, right? Yeah, very insightful. Yeah, there was another one over here, fear, fear, uh, because fear is uh, it's a good way to approach life, right? Because if you're cautious, then things don't go wrong, right? And if you're cautious, you're safe because you can stay out of the way of bad stuff, right? No, no, no more females. We need, we need to pressure the guys. We need to pressure the guys to speak up. See, too many blessings already. I hate you. Too many blessings in Steve's life. What, say, say, and that, that disqualifies you from more blessings because it feels like it's, it's too good. Life is too good, and therefore God doesn't want to bless you too much because I don't know how to end that sentence, but I get it. I get it. Yes. The other Steve. Big disappointment because you've suffered a big disappointment, and it's marked you. And it's made you believe that in life, you're just going to be disappointed. That's your role. You're right? Some people get blessed, and some people get disappointed. Am I right? How many of you get blessed? How many of you get disappointed? Come on. How many of you identify with the disappointment more than the blessing? Totally. Yeah. Oh, we could go on and on, right? Because um, we have lots of ways to not expect good things from God. Okay. Second warm-up question. What would happen if you always expected good things from God? A lot more good things would happen. Is that true? If you expected good things from God to happen in every moment, would that mean more good things happen? No? Yes? You'd be aware. You'd notice them when they did happen. That's true. Well, I, I kind of I thought we'd have a little uh, second guessing uh, about that uh, because um, it's, well, because we're so trained to think that good things aren't going to happen. <laughs> you know, we don't want to make it too simple, do we? 
We don't want to, we, 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 think, we think that's a complicated issue. You know, should you always expect good things from God? Well, um, yeah, that's complicated. I don't know, is it? Or is it not? But I'm telling you that that is right up there on the top of, of the list of influential factors in your life whether or not you always expect good things from God, or whether you complicate it, or overcomplicate it, or whatever. It's a big deal. It goes to your mindset of faith, and faith is a mindset. Faith is an attitude. It is an approach. Faith is not what you believe. It's what you do with what you believe. It's how you wield it. It's how you operationalize it. God is good. Is God good right now in this moment, though? Is God good in this situation? Is God good with respect to this particular challenge, disappointment, failure, potential failure that I'm experiencing right now? Okay, that's the thing. We know that God is good all the time, but not right now because this is serious, you know, and that's, that's kind of how we do it as humans. And getting that ironed out a little bit and expecting good things from God is a really big deal. Our mindset, our attitude, our approach to life, whether or not we take a faith approach to life, has a profound influence on life. Mindset in general, attitude and approach, has a, has a profound influence on the material world around us and in us. And, and even, even, you know, secular scientists are... Uh, are convinced uh, of this. Um, I was uh, getting my education on YouTube this week. I get a little YouTube education every week. Um, love those TED Talks and things like that. You can learn things so easily these days, and I am such a learnaholic. I'm almost pathological about it. So I was going through some, uh, some science this week on, on mindset, expectation, and attitude, and how that affects outcomes, and I came upon this great uh, YouTube talk by uh, this uh, doctor, uh, Aaliyah Crum uh, from where she works now. She's out of Harvard. I'm not sure where she is now. Yale, maybe. And she just kind of did a review of mindset science studies. She first cited this. It's actually a, a fairly famous study uh, by an Italian uh, doctor, uh, medical staff. Uh, this guy noticed he uh, was a, a thoracic surgeon, so like open heart surgery and stuff like that. And, and he noticed that um, it's a very painful surgery. Uh, and afterwards, they always give the patients painkillers uh, when the anesthesia wears off. And he noticed that when they put the morphine into the automated drip machine, so it like constantly drips into the bloodstream, it, it worked, but not incredibly well. But when a doctor walks up to the patient and says, now I'm going to give you painkiller, it will help, and injects the patient, it works up to uh, 700 times better because the patient's like, all right, now I will feel better. And the patient does, even in a very physical uh, situation. So they got curious and they did some other studies. They did studies on treatment for anxiety, on treatment for Parkinson's disease, a neurological disease, and hypertension. And they found that in every case, when uh, they gave uh, medicine or treatment to the person in a way that uh, was not uh, explained or administered directly uh, by someone, we would say, pastoring the situation. It worked, but when they gave treatment in a way that was direct 
and positive, it always works, well, up to 700 times better, up to seven times better when a person kind of was instructed that it should work. The treatments and the medicines, the chemicals, always worked uh, better. And this doctor, uh, uh, this researcher, got interested in that and, uh, and uh, started studying what we would call the placebo effect, right? You've heard of this, you, you know, you're having a terrible headache or, some, or something like that and no medication works, so the doctor gives you a sugar pill and says, this is the most powerful pill out there, and then suddenly the pain goes away, and they call that a placebo. Uh, like, you're better because you imagine that you're better. And she thought, this researcher, well, maybe it's more than that. And so they started to, um, they started to, uh, to research physical changes in the body that this so-called imagined effect uh, has. Uh, she was an athlete originally, this doctor, and, uh, and one of the professors at Harvard said, well, Exercise is just a placebo effect. It works because you expect it to work. And that was a challenge. So what she did is that um, she and her team uh, found some physical laborers. Uh, and, and the group they've come up with was hotel maids, which I think is awesome. They work hard every day. And they measure like how many calories it takes to vacuum uh, for 20 minutes, how many calories it takes to flip a mattress and stuff like that. And then they, they gathered all of these hotel maids and they said, uh, do you exercise? And almost all the maids said, no, we don't have time. You know, life is too hard for us. And, and then they gave them a 15-minute video and said, no, your work is great exercise. And they listed some of the calorie-burning levels that the various activities had and said, you guys should be really fit. Actually, they did it to half of the maids. And then half of the maids, they just left alone. And they measured all of these physical, uh, these physical uh, things like, you know, their blood pressure, their weight, their body fat. And then they let them go for, I forget what the, the specified time was. I think it was just like a month, uh, maybe 40 days. Uh, and then they went back and they measured all of the physical metrics again, you know, blood pressure, body fat, weight. And the maids that were told that their work was fantastic exercise has significant reductions in weight and body fat and blood pressure. And the maids that were not told that their work was fantastic exercise were just the same. Because the mind matters, right? Their minds just responded to exercise differently. Their minds told their bodies to do things differently. Oh, we're vacuuming, burn some calories. And it worked, sort of mind over matter. It's the classic mind over matter uh, argument. This is my favorite study, though. You guys will like this study. Uh, the same, same research, at least the same research leaders, did a study at, at Yale University among students, and it was a milkshake study. So this is what they did. They invited students to come in and to drink a couple of milkshakes, and they paid the students $75 to do this. Would you do that study? It's like, that's a good study. Uh, the, the caveat was that while they were drinking the milkshakes, they were hooked up to an IV and uh, a blood level of a certain uh, chemical, a certain hormone was measured. It's a, it's a, I think it's a peptide called ghrelin. It's called the hunger hormone. And what happens when, you're, when you eat something, your body releases ghrelin. It comes from your gut. Your gut secretes it. And it's the hormone that tells your body, oh, we just took in a lot of food. Uh, you are now not hungry anymore. 
and you now can start revving your metabolism because you've just taken in some calories. And of course, the more that you eat, the higher the ghrelin goes. So if you eat a lot, even before you begin to digest it, you feel really full, and that's, that's ghrelin telling your body to do that. And so they, they brought in these students, and first they gave him a milkshake, and it was a Sensa milkshake. You know, it's like, uh, you know what that is? It's like, uh, it's fake. It's fake. So it's like no sugar, no real calories, anything like that. So a diet milkshake in it. And it had like, I don't know, like 170 calories for this big old milkshake, something like that. And they, they drank the, the diet milkshake and they measured the ghrelin. And the ghrelin, uh, you know, it, they had a, a small change in it, but not too much. And then they recorded these levels. And then I think it was a week, a week later, they invited in the same students. And then they gave them what was called an indulgence milkshake. They had like, you know, three scoops of ice cream and chocolate syrup and, you know, everything in there. And I think it was something like 675 calories in one cup. Yes. You know, butterfat bliss. And they drank that and they measured the ghrelin. And of course, when they drank that, the change in the ghrelin was massive. It was something like, I forget what it was, but it was like 10 times greater. And the funny thing was they lied to the students. It was the same milkshake both times. Um, but their expectation of what the milkshake would do to their body utterly shaped how they felt and how their metabolism worked. You should be applauding right now if you need to lose weight. It's like, this, this changes my life. You know, and our mindset materially changes our, our, our bodies. And, you know, speaking of running, I, I've done athletics my whole life, and now I get to coach them. I, I, I swear I see this in, in athletes all the time, particularly in distance running, which is by definition a contest of who can endure more pain. And, and I can almost tell how kids are going to perform by the mindset they have when they go into it. You know, when the pain happens, and in a distance race, it always happens. It's not like a sprint where it's over before you can think. There's always a moment in a two-mile race where you think, wow, I don't know if I can stand this pain anymore. And how you respond to that, I think, tells your body what it can and cannot do. And, and the kids who kind of develop ability to, wow, I hurt. Time to relax. Time to breathe easy. Time to really trust myself and my training. They, their body, actually, the biochemistry in their body, I'm, I'm convinced, actually changes at that point. It's not just what they're trained to do. It's what, what they tell themselves they can do, mind over matter. And then, of course, you see some kids panic from the pain, or some adults, and, and they, they shut down. Um, so this is a sermon series we're going to do, a little sermon series about how to win the battle in your mind. And of course, we're not talking about diets or calories or athletic performance or something like that. We're talking about the, the battle for the mindset of faith, the battle to be set in faith so that no matter what happens or no matter what we're about, we expect great things as we walk with the Lord and work with the Lord in those moments. We expect great things with the Lord all the time. Otherwise, it's not a mind set. Otherwise, it's not set. It's fluctuating. Uh, how many of you fluctuate? How many of you have ever experienced a financial breakthrough in life? It's like, wow, that turned out way better than I had a right to expect. Anyone? 
All right. Now, for those of you who expected a good financial breakthrough, just like a, a move of the Lord, a gift of the Lord, how, for how many of you, the second time there was a financial crisis, you reacted as fearfully as you did the first time? You, you didn't learn anything. Um, because every time something scary happens, we react scared. It seems to me that if we have one breakthrough with the Lord, the second time something scary happens, the second time we need a miracle, the second time there's a crisis, we should actually behave better. But I notice I, I don't automatically do that. I don't learn. I'm not set. I'm relying on something else. I'm relying on mood or emotion or the support of the people uh, around me. When you always think, God and I are going to do something great with this situation, when you can think that all the time, that's, that's what it means to have a mindset of faith. And, and I think something great will always happen because the nature of God does not change. And God is always eager for you. God is always a blessor. God is always a provider. Now, we can't always say exactly how the great thing is going to happen, but a great thing is going to happen. Do you believe that's true, or am I overstating it? Because that's the battle, whether or not you think I'm overstating. And it's a battle, of course, that I have fought tooth and nail in my life, because uh, you, know, you know, there have been great tracks of my life in which uh, I have uh, fought a really deadly uh, depression. You know, I know how hard this battle can, can be. Um, I uh, reviewed recently some of the prophetic dreams uh, that I've had uh, over uh, the last year, and, and I was reviewing this dream I had at year end. I actually mentioned it in a sermon, which is why I bring it up this morning. Is It was right at the turn of, of this year, and in this dream, um, I was, uh, the short version is that, I was just beset by all these fearsome situations and need. I was just kind of like walking along in the dream, and someone here was really, really sick, so I had to like try to heal them miraculously. And then someone that uh, we loved was dead, and I had to try and resurrect that person, and I was calming waves, and I was trying to raise up people and, and, and encourage people to help me in, in all of these desperate, miracle-needing situations. And, and in the dream, it, it was... Uh, the, the, the substance of the dream was kind of how it felt and what was required of me and, and me trying to get my game on in the dream. And the most poignant moment was the moment I woke up because I woke up from the dream. Uh, it's one of those dreams where when you wake up, you just kind of fly out of bed and I just kind of, you know, I was just like up on the edge of my bed and I was praying as I woke up. And the prayer on my lips was, dear God, give me faith. Dear God, give me faith. And I thought, that's a good dream. Sometimes my spirit, spirit is a, a good prayer. Sometimes my spirit is a lot smarter than my head because what I wasn't praying for was deliverance. Oh, God, make these situations go away. Or even something like, oh, God, help, which is a great prayer. Instead, I was praying, oh, God, this is going to be a heck of a year. Give me faith so that when these things happen, I meet it with the right attitude. I meet it with the right mindset. Because if I do, then, you know, as it was in the dream, I will see healing and resurrection. But my spirit is smart enough to know that really it's a battle for, for faith. It's a battle for attitude. 
And uh, we're almost midway through the year right now. I can say that some fearsome, challenging things have happened. And that sometimes I have met them with faith. Yeah. I was going to share some of those stories uh, today, but I realized most of them involve other people, and they're not really my stories to share. Um, but, uh, but the battle continues, is what I'm saying. Now, Jesus, if you know anything about the Jesus stories and reading through the gospel, talks about faith and faith attitudes and faith approach a ton of different ways in a ton of different situations. He is constantly telling us that, that faith, if you can get a grip on it, if you can get set in it, changes everything. And a lot of these teachings are famous. They're, they're almost slogans now. You see them on bumper stickers. You know, faith can move mountains. He gives that teaching more than once. Uh, in a recent sermon, we went over the teaching where he says, if you just have a little bit of faith, you can say to this mulberry tree, get up and move into the ocean, and it will go. Mountains, mulberry trees, whatever it is you have to move. Faith is so powerful that if you actually set in it, you can change the physical world like that. When the disciples fail to heal the little boy with epilepsy in, in Matthew 17, and another version of the story is in Mark 9, uh, Jesus says to them, well, it's because you have so little faith. You didn't, you didn't get set appropriately. And then Jesus, of course, heals the boy after encouraging the father to express some faith. When Peter is walking on water and then gets afraid and sinks in the waves, Jesus walks over to him and pulls him up out of the water. And what does he say to Peter? He said, why do you have so little faith? You were doing great. You know, the miracle was happening. And then you gave up on faith. You weren't set. You were wishy-washy. Come on, Pete. Get back in the boat. We'll try again later typical experience uh, with Jesus. When, when the Syrophoenician woman, the Canaanite woman, came to Jesus while he was on vacation and says, please heal my little girl, she's suffering. Right? She was not an Israelite. Jesus had in his mind that it was not time for him to serve foreigners yet. So he looks at her and he says, no, it's not time for me to do that yet, sorry. Jesus tells her no. No miracle for your family. No. And then she says, well, even the dogs get crumbs from the, master's from the children's table. Come on, how about it? And Jesus responds and said, all right, that's great faith. I can't resist that. Go in peace. Your daughter is well. Even when the Lord says no, you know, if you move in the mindset of faith, he's, he's so excited about faith that he could not resist and did the miracle anyway. I love that story. Uh, nine times in the Gospels, by my count, Jesus says something. After a miracle, he says something along the lines of, your faith has healed you. He's saying that all the time. We should just be fascinated by the mindset uh, of faith. He's always, always talking about it. Faith is powerful. And I think a mindset of faith is always going to win somehow. Do you think that's true, or have I overstated it? Is it, is it more complicated than that? Or is that it? I think that's the battle line uh, right there. 
So I know that faith should be our mind set, the firm setting of our mind, our mind set firmly in the unchanging stone of faith, an iron framework of faith. That's, that's, that's what I know. I think we should be locked in to faith attitude, never flinching, no matter what happens, no matter what we face, and no matter how many times we face it because I think that's one of the things that gets me. It's like, I have victory over this problem this time, and then the same problem will happen three months later, and I'll be like, oh, I guess I didn't get victory. <laughs> you know, it's back, as if, you know, getting hungry every day proves that food is not effective, right? It's silly, but that's how I am. We got to get set no matter how many times we face similar challenges, because faith doesn't get tired. Write that down. Faith doesn't get tired. So enough with this, with this wishy-washy mindset. There are actually quite a few verses uh, in, in the epistles about the danger of a wishy-washy mindset. This is from Ephesians 4. So I tell you this, and I insist on it in the Lord, Paul says to the church in Ephesus, that you must no longer live like the Gentiles do, like unbelievers do, in the futility of their thinking, in the powerlessness of of their mindset is an alternate translation. They are darkened in their understanding. They are dim-witted <laughs> and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. They let emotions overrun them. Having lost all sensitivity, they give themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. Once you lose your mindset, you 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 drift into uh, destructive behavior. That, however, is not the way of life that you learned. That's not the way of life. That's not the, that's not the strategy. That's not the approach that you guys know. When you heard about Christ and were taught in Him accordance with the truth that is in Jesus, you were taught with regard, regard to your former way of life to put off the old self, which is being corrupted by sinful desires, and to be made new in the attitude of your minds. That's that famous Greek perpetual tense. To be being made new. To be constantly renewed in your attitude. That's the key, he says. You learned about this. You learn to approach life with a certain attitude that is constantly revved up. To... <clears throat> Uh, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Put off falsehood. Don't be false anymore, uh, he says. Great verse. Renew your mind. Renew your mind. Otherwise, you're going to be tossed around. Otherwise, you're going to be uh, wishy-washy. Uh, we have mature faith when our faith rests in the nature of God rather than in the situation because His nature doesn't change. If you need provision today like you needed it last year, um, God will provide. You have changed. You may be more or less qualified for a miracle than you were last time, but the fact is God hasn't changed, and He's still a provider, and He's still a healer, and He's still a comforter, and He's still a leader. And that never changes about God, and therefore your attitude of what you get by walking with God should never change. Can I hear an amen? 
God's nature doesn't change. Therefore, your expectations shouldn't either. Our faith has to be rooted in his unchanging nature more than it's rooted in our variable behaviors and our variable uh, situations. Anyone can have great faith for a moment, but to have a mindset permanently in faith, you need to trust in, in God's nature right? as opposed to anything else. The consistency of your faith rests only on your view of God. How do you view God? Who is God to you? That determines everything. So our story today is from Mark chapter 8. Um, it's sort of a longish passage, but we will get through it quickly. Just as kind of a meditation on faith and attitude, and, uh, and it's a familiar story. I always like those. As teaching tools, <clears throat> Mark 8, we're going to read verses 1 through 21. And this is the story of the miraculous feeding, where Jesus feeds thousands of people with just a few loaves of bread and a few fish. Do you know that story? This is actually the second time he does this. There are actually two miraculous feedings in the Gospels. Did you know this? There's one, and then just four chapters later uh, in, in the Gospel of Mark, there is another. It works the same way in the Gospel of Matthew, by the way. So this is the second time that they have fed thousands of people with a small bento. The second time this has happened. That's important to understand. Uh, during those days, another large crowd gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. Same thing he said in the first story, because God's nature never changes. He's always compassionate. Always compassionate on those in need. I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. His disciples answered, but where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? Bible scholars, what do you notice about that statement? No faith. What's that? Rhetorical question? It's the same thing they said the first time. It's like, uh, we don't have anything to feed them with. Same thing they said the first time. I would like to think it was a rhetorical question. I'd like to think that they knew what Jesus was going to do, but it just fascinates me. They have recently experienced a miraculous feeding where they fed thousands of people with a bento, and Jesus said, hey, we have thousands of hungry people here. We should do something, guys. And they think, yeah, we got nothing. We got, yeah, we, we don't have any food. Uh, uh, how many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied, which was more than they had the first time, actually. Uh, he told the crowd to sit down on the ground, and we had taken the seven the loaves and given thanks. He broke them and gave them to the disciples to distribute to the people, and they did so. In other words, he does the same exact thing he did the first time that he miraculously fed thousands of people. The people ate and were satisfied after the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. There were leftovers, the same as before. The amount has changed a little bit, but that's all. About 4,000 were present. There were fewer people this time uh, than last time. It's as if 
the, the author is telling us, you know, it's even a smaller miracle, right? Instead of feeding 5,000, they only fed four. Instead of only having five loaves, they had seven. I mean, if anything, the disciples should have been more positive, even though it was a miracle uh, both ways. Uh, about 4,000 were present. After he had sent them away, he got into the boat and his disciples and went to the region of Dalmanutha. Now, when they, get, uh, when they get there, they land on the shore, the Pharisees came and began to question Jesus. A little interlude in the story. To test him, they asked him for a sign from heaven. Okay, crazy irony. It's like, you want a sign from heaven? Did you not hear the rumors? Like, I just fed thousands of people with a bento. And you're like, well, we're religious authorities. Why don't you give us a sign now? You know, how frustrating. And so he sighed deeply. Yeah, I bet he sighed deeply. Um, um, uh, He might have even uh, said something grumbly. I don't know. It's Jesus. He sighed deeply and said, why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly, I tell it tell you no sign will be given it, which is an ironic statement. It's like, no, I'm not going to give you a sign because mm, you don't pay attention. Uh, Then he left them, got back into the boat, and crossed to the other side. So he's just had it. It's like, forget it. Let's get out of here. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread in the boat, except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod, you know, the guys that had just asked him for a sign. They discussed this with one another and said, oh, it's because we have no bread. That's the problem. That's why he's talking about yeast. It's because we didn't bring enough provisions. Okay, so you get it? I mean, seriously? Seriously? You're worried that you don't have enough food in the boat? We have just miraculously fed crowds of thousands twice? (sighs) You're worried about provision. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? And I'm sure he said it just like that. Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember when I broke the five loaves of bread for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they said. When I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. And he said to them, do you still not understand? question to you. What was it they were supposed to understand? Come on. You've read the stories that the Lord provides. Yeah. There's always enough. And, and I, think, I think the operative word there is always. You know, it's, do you, it's, it's not really about you. It's not really about whether you did it right or all the I's are dotted or the T's crossed. God is a provider. It's just who He is in any type of situation. If you're short on rent this month, God is a provider. 
If you have one bento and 5,000 people to feed, God is a provider. If you have a large-sized bento and 4,000 people to eat, God is a provider. If you're in a boat and there's 13 people and you only have one loaf of bread, God is a provider. It doesn't matter because it's God, and He can do anything. Uh, and if you work with Him, you can pull off anything, as it turns out. Do you not understand that this is not an exam? This is not some pharisaical religious exam. God is not a religious God. God is a provider. And if you would just fix your view of God, maybe you'd have faith. And you'd stop bothering me so much. I think he probably threw in uh, on, on this day. God is a provider. Jesus is always compassionate. God is always provider. Well, what we wish to see in this story is Jesus said, Oh, guys, you know what? We've got another crowd of thousands of people, and they've been with me for days, and they don't have food. They've run out, and some of them have traveled a great distance. We're in a precarious situation here. If I send them away, some of them may just perish on the road. They may faint. They may get sick. And you just wish that one of the guys would have raised his hand and said, I have an idea. I have. Remember that thing we did a couple weeks ago where we fed thousands of people with a lunch? Some little boy's lunch that we cockroached from the boy? How about we do that again, Jesus? I, I think Jesus would have done backflips if, if somebody would have just said, hey, we got this, don't we? And this is in our repertoire. We've seen breakthroughs from the Lord before. We've seen a few miracles. How about we do one now? But they didn't. What they did is they reacted to the situation. Oh, this does look grim. This does look grim. You know, they reacted in fear and caution because that works better. All right. They weren't set in their mind, uh, in other words. And, uh, and they were in danger of getting their butts kicked, uh, but Jesus pulled it out for them. Um, but you can imagine how they could have reacted differently. And even after seeing the miracle the second time, you think, okay, well, now they understand. And then the very first time, <laughs> you know, they're challenged with a, a seeming lack of provision. They freak out again, even though it's only for a small group. And they think that the Lord is angry at them for not having done things correctly. Oh, I haven't been responsible. I haven't brought enough bread for the journey. Oh, it's the Pharisees' fault. No, it's Nathaniel's fault. He was in charge. Judas is the guy that keeps the money bag. He sh you know, you just kind of imagine the conversation that they were having. And Jesus is just uh, fit, uh, fit to be tied. Do you still not understand? Are you still not set? Fortunately, this is only halfway through the Gospel of Mark, and they get a lot more practice, and that's always something that's encouraging for those of us who don't get it right the first time, or the second time, or in this case, the third time. And then in the end, Judas would sell him for 30 pieces of silver. He still didn't understand. He never had to worry about having enough, never had to worry about having provision. God always provides. Sometimes one way, sometimes another, sometimes there are seven basketfuls, sometimes less, sometimes more, um, but 
God's nature is, is to provide. Set your mind on it and do not ever doubt it, people. Do not ever doubt it. That's what Scripture says. Do you not remember what He has done for you? Or don't you remember what He's done for others? You've at least heard the great stories of the people around you at Blue Water Mission. Do you think this is some religious game that you have to get right in order for God to bless you and be generous? I mean, what's your view of God? Is He that religious God, or is He just, you know, this super generous, eager Father that you get to trust and work with every day? It's not good to be wishy-washy in our faith. What's our problem anyway? What's our excuse for not expecting good things from God? Uh, the reality is that we have lots of different problems that cause us to mind-let instead of mind-set. Uh, that's how I think about it myself. There's, there's a difference between a mind-set and a mind-let. A mind-let is when we let our minds go to places they shouldn't. <laughs> and a lot of us have mind-let instead of mind-set. We entertain all sorts of lies. We entertain lies about God. We entertain a lot of lies about how God sees us. And we just dwell on it. Oh, maybe I've screwed this up. Well, yeah, probably, but doesn't really matter, you know, because I've noticed that God operates exclusively with sinners and screw-ups. Uh, or we permit ourselves to misbehave in some way. We reach for some sort of false comfort uh, which darkens our understanding. And then we start to play mind games about justifying ourselves and saying, well, you know, it's too hard. We have too many complaints. That's why it doesn't work the same for us as it works for other people. Or we indulge in anxiety and doubt. Sometimes we indulge in anxiety and doubt as a way to manipulate those around us. Oh, you want to do some great move of faith? Well, I'm not sure how I feel about that. Therefore, you carry the burden and you be in charge. And I'll just sit back here and enjoy the benefits if they come. Uh, lots of faith games are played like that. And generally, I think we humans are just spiritually lazy. It's just more comfortable to sit back and watch what develops or uh, to pass the responsibility to other people. We like to be wishy-washy. It's comforting. It's easy to excuse, you know. It means that we don't have to be the guy in the front lines, but it's not how we're supposed to be. And if we're going to win the battle of life, we're going to have to win the battle of the mind. We're going to have to win the battle for faith in our minds. We're going to have to set our minds on God's nature and just make it the way we go about things always. It's just the way that we approach life. We have a personality of faith, a permanent personality of faith. So we'll just end with this question. Uh, we'll end with this question, and then we're going to do uh, several subsequent sermons about getting set in faith and ways to help ourselves do that. And we'll talk about potential mindlets, common mindlets, and how to fight them with mindset instead. But here's a question to end on today, something for you to think about. Who is God to you? I mean, what's he actually like? Who is God to you? You know, and then secondarily, and how do you operationalize that? God is good. Really? I mean, you know, is that, is that your operational mode? Right? Is that your method? God is good all the time. So even though this situation looks a little bit scary, 
God is good. You know? Even though thousands of people are relying on me and, you know, I don't have anything. I have to steal a lunch from the kid. Uh, something great could happen here. You know? Who is God to you? Is God a provider? Is God a creative empowerer? I mean, is, is he God? Does he play by human rules? I mean, who is God to you? And do you always act accordingly? And if you don't, then you have room to grow. Right? If you don't, then, then we, get to, we get to work on it so that we behave as if we actually have a God uh, like that. So uh, I'm just going to end here by uh, taking 60 seconds and inviting the Holy Spirit to speak to all of us about our mindset of faith. Or is it a mindlet of faith? Or is it a combination of the both?